Hi, folks. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, the story of Shalom Aleichem. When you hear the name Shalom Aleichem, maybe you think of Tevye the Dairyman and his Broadway showstoppers. It's true, Shalom Aleichem wrote the stories on which Fiddler on the Roof is based, but his body of work is much broader than that. In dozens and dozens of stories, novels, newspaper articles, plays, and yes, poems, he depicted the humor and the despair that characterized Shtetl life at a crucial moment when it faced threats from within and from without. Readers and critics considered him the Jewish Mark Twain, and when he died at the age of 57, he left behind tens of thousands of fans around the world. Nearly a century after his death, Shalom Aleichem is the subject of a new biography by Jeremy Dauber. Dauber is a professor of Yiddish at Columbia University. His book is called The World of Shalom Aleichem, and it's the newest title in Next Book's Jewish Encounter series. Jeremy Dauber joins us today in the studio to talk about it. Jeremy, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. For those of us who know Shalom Aleichem only as the creator of the story upon which the beloved Fiddler on the Roof is based, how do you characterize him as a writer? What made him special and what makes him different from what we might expect if Fiddler is our only reference? Well, I think the reason that I was attracted to writing about Shalom Aleichem in the first place is just the real quality of his writing. He's a tremendous writer, really one of the world's great writers. Um, I think that the palette that he has to choose from, the, 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 the wide sweep of Jewish history at this incredibly transformative time, uh, his ability to create pathos and combine it with humor, to create indelible characters, and to speak in these uh, idiosyncratic uh, and 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 charming and delightful and powerful and tragic Jewish voices that come through e- even in translation, although really the quality of his Yiddish is something to to marvel at. These are things that come through in Fiddler on the Roof, but they they, they really go beyond it in in in, in fundamental ways in, in reading the stories, uh, and that was what attracted me to see something more about the man behind the stories because as it turns out, most of his readership at the time really had a relationship with Shalom Aleichem, uh, the figure, um, and, and not just the stories that were created. So he was a writer and that's how you should read him first. That's how I read him first. But then I became increasingly interested with him as a, as a, as a man. Well, we're going to get to all that in a little bit. Before we do, I wonder if there's a passage in translation in English, that is, that captures a little bit of what you're talking about. And before you get into that passage, maybe you can set it up for us. Sure. Uh, so the passage that I've chosen is from what I think is one of Shalom Aleichem's most brilliant stories called On Account of a Hat. And it's the story of a man who takes a remarkably odd train trip uh, in order to get home for Passover on time. And it is based on a very old Jewish joke. But the way in which Shalom Aleichem sets up the story shows a lot of the game playing that he did with his audience and the complicated levels of literary magic uh, that he works, mystification and confusion mixed with comedy and irony all at once. So you're going to see a little bit about this because this introduction that I'm giving you is simply the introduction to the story of the train passage. Okay, here it is. This is the beginning of Shalom Aleichem's On Account of a Hat. Did I hear you say absent-minded? Now, 
in our town, that is in Kisrilovka, we've really got someone for you. You hear what I say? His name is Sholem Shachna, but we call him Sholem Shachna Rattlebrain. And is he absent-minded? Is this a distracted creature? Lord have mercy on us. The stories they tell about him, about this Sholem Shachna, bushels and baskets of stories. I tell you, whole crates full of stories and anecdotes. It's too bad you're in such a hurry on account of the Passover, because what I could tell you, Mr. Sholem Aleichem, you hear what I say? You could go on writing it down forever. But if you can spare a moment, I'll tell you a story about what happened to Sholem Shachna on a Passover Eve. A story about a hat, a true story, I should live so, even if it does sound like someone made it up. These were the words of a Kisrilovka merchant, a dealer in stationery, that is to say, snips of paper. He smoothed out his beard, folded it down over his neck, and went on smoking his thin little cigarettes one after the other. I must confess that this true story, which he related to me, does indeed sound like a concocted one. And for a long time, I couldn't make up my mind whether or not I should pass it on to you. But I thought it over and decided that if a respectable merchant and dignitary of Kisrilovka, who deals in stationery and is surely no literateur, if he vouches for a story, it must be true. What would he be doing with fiction? Here it is in his own words. I had nothing to do with it. That's, that's wonderful. I love that. The name Shalom Alechem translates roughly as peace be upon you or how do you do. It wasn't his given name, though. He was born in 1859 as Shalom Rabinovich, and he grew up in the Pale of Settlement in what is now Ukraine. Tell us what you can about his early years. So Shalom Alechem, or as you say, Shalom Rabinovich, Shalom Nachumovich Rabinovich, was born into a time that really was a period of incredible transition in modern Jewish history. That was because it was becoming modern Jewish history. The ideas and the, the movements of modernity were sweeping through Eastern Europe, and Shalom was, was part of that. He, he grew up in a family that was already beginning to suffer and to to benefit from some of these strains and, and stresses. Uh, his father was already somewhat interested in these new ideas and so was able to support Shalom in his learning Russian and learning about the literature of these new worlds. But he also was suffering from personal tragedy. His mother uh, uh, passed away around the time of his bar mitzvah uh, and he had a stepmother, his father remarried, uh, and it was not a good relationship, to put it mildly. And so that was very difficult for the young man. And and what he ended up doing in some ways was dealing with uh, this traumatic circumstance. Uh, his father lost a lot of money uh, uh, in, in his early years, in Shalom's early years, that is to say. And uh, so poverty and trauma and sort of this abusive stepmother. And he turned all of that into writing, even at an early age. He was a graphomaniac from, from right away. Uh, and he wrote one of his first literary creations was an alphabetized list of his stepmother's curses. <laughs> and that was the very beginning uh, of a strategy that people have associated with Shalom Aleichem throughout sort of the history of reading him, which is uh, – turning tragedy into comedy, or as uh, David Roski's, uh, a colleague of mine once put it, laughing off the trauma of history. So what were some of the best curses from that uh, list? Well, you know, I don't know that they would work so well in English, but uh, I'll give you an example of how Yiddish curses work. So uh, if you, um, y you know, you were compared often to a, uh, an object, uh, and then, you know, there's a kind of creativity and ingenuity about this. So, for example, you could say you should be like a chandelier. 
you should hang by day and burn by night. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so that's the kind of thing. And, and you know, and, and there were all sorts of ways uh, to, to do this according to the Aleph base, the Hebrew and Yiddish alphabet. Uh, but what it would do is call also on the wide, wide uh, panoramic range of Yiddish language. And that was something that Shalom Aleichem was always very good at. When did he change his name? So uh, changing his name is an interesting question because – it was the thing to do for a educated and modernizing Jewish writer to adopt pseudonyms if they were going to write in Yiddish. And the reason they did that was because writing literature in Yiddish was kind of looked down upon. If you were really a modern kind of guy, if you were looking forward, if you were progressive, you didn't write in this jargon that, uh, according to the time, was fit for cooks and serving maids and sort of the lower classes. You wrote either in the classically elevated Hebrew, or you wrote in Russian or the language of your uh, of your local country. Um, but Shalom Aleichem loved, or Shalom Rabinovich at this point, loved Yiddish, uh, and he really wanted to write in a language that first lots of people could understand him in because he loved making communications and connections with people, but also uh, that he loved writing in a language that felt comfortable for him to express his literary sensibilities. So like a lot of other people, he adopted uh, uh, pseudonyms. Um, and, and I use the plural because uh, Shalom Aleichem, which was a pun on his first name, Shalom, uh, was only one of many that he adopted. My favorite was, uh, if I remember correctly, Shalom Bicherfresser, which means something like Solomon Book Gobbler. And Shalom Aleichem was the one that stuck. Um, but it really does speak to some aspects of his essential personality, this eagerness to reach out to people. Shalom Aleichem, meaning how do you do, is a kind of greeting, a hello, uh, of wishing people sort of good fortune and having happiness be with them. And that was something that that essential goodwill towards readers was something that, that people sensed, even if Shalom Aleichem's actual literary uh, writings were more complicated than sometimes people gave him credit for. Now, he came out of a somewhat religious uh, household, but he did not continue on that path. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, one of the common, though not uh, constant, effects of this modernizing process was that people increasingly took a hard look at the traditional observance that was an essential part of Jewish life for many centuries and said, I don't know if I believe that I have to do all of these things. And Shalom Aleichem was one of those people too. He, uh, especially he, as he became uh, wealthier, he married uh, a very wealthy uh, woman uh, and moved into sort of the precincts of upper class Jewish life in sort of the big cities. He sort of left that behind as a matter of traditional observance, but he loved traditional Jewish culture. He just loved it. He loved reading the Bible. He loved celebrating holidays with his family. Like a lot of modern uh, Jews now, he felt that holidays were a time to think about where he had come from and also to bring family together. And those were very important parts of his identity. You mentioned that he inherited great wealth through his wife. Uh, I think, though, that when many people think about him and they think about the characters that he portrayed, we think that he was probably himself someone confined to a shtetl his whole life. That, in fact, wasn't true. What was the sort of cosmopolitan life that he led? I think you're right to say that one of the great illusions that that almost all of us have uh, who have uh, – not that much familiarity with Shalom Aleichem or as a as a person or, or simply seeing him as a maybe a name on the the credits of Fiddler on the Roof uh, is really to think about him as Tevya or as someone who is a lot like Tevya. Um, 
But as you say, you know, that wasn't really the case. And one of the remarkable things about Shalom Aleichem was that he was able to kind of keep in touch and to really understand all of these different constituencies that made up this incredibly complicated and fragmented uh, 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 Jewish life uh, at the period in which he lived. Um, I think, though, that in terms of his own life, you know, it was, as you say, largely speaking, a cosmopolitan one. It was a cosmopolitan one that was often, especially later on, impacted by the need to make money, by financial pressures. Uh, he inherited a lot of money from, from his wife, but he very quickly lost all of that money when, uh, when the Russian stock market crashed and he had made some bad investments. And, and, and he really, a lot of his life was about trying to maintain a style of life that he had become accustomed to. Uh, in addition, he became sick. He got tuberculosis, which eventually he died from. And that, there were a lot of medical bills uh, in the family. Um, but he, he had a cosmopolitan orientation. His daughter says that when they lived, as they did for a long time, in the great cities of, uh, of Russia, in, um, he, in Kiev, he was always going to the opera and he was going to the play. And, and this was a great time, the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, for Russian literature, theater, and culture. And he really absorbed all of this as well as reading the great works of Western literature in uh, both in the original and in translation. Um, he was just a, a, a real – had a real thirst for culture and for knowledge and that made its way in all sorts of ways into his, his, his own writing. Let's talk for a moment about Tevya, the milkman, who is of course the hero of what becomes Fiddler on the Roof. Tevya was based on an actual milkman in the rural town where Shalom Aleichem and his family summered. What do we know about the original Tevya, and how did Shalom Aleichem come to know him? So it was a pretty common thing for Russians of a certain social class and a pretty wide social class to get out of uh, town for the summer. They would go uh, to uh, places uh, you know, more in the country and they would spend time uh, there. And you know, they, they would live in these sort of small not necessarily particularly fancy uh, homes. And, you know, they, they were not – sometimes they didn't have bathrooms. The, uh, they were not necessarily many rooms. Um, and, you know, the necessities would have to be delivered. Uh, and one of the things that was a necessity that had to be delivered was the milk and the dairy products. And uh, the local dairy man was this guy, Tavia, apparently, who uh, had a fairly idiosyncratic and interesting way of talking. And Shalom Aleichem was always on the lookout for interesting people with interesting stories and interesting locutions, you might say. Uh, and he had a notebook that he carried around all the time and he would write these things down. And his daughter reports that, you know, he really was engaged in these conversations with this local milkman and kind of loved this guy. Who knows really what was on those notebook pages? You know, what exactly this milkman said and what he didn't say. But Shalom Lechem was clearly inspired by this guy to turn him into the figure of Tevya that the readers of the stories and then in transformed version, the, the, the watchers of Fiddler on the Roof know. Um, it got so, uh, so famous in some sense that this Tevya became a kind of local celebrity and people would come to the area to kind of See Tevya now. It, it, most of the the journals and the gazettes that 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 Shalom Aleichem's Tevya stories appeared in, apparently at first were not read by this particular milkman. So at first he wasn't 
a little sort of uh, nonplussed about everything that was going on. But but soon he got into it, apparently, and, and uh, you know, realized that this was probably good for him. Before uh, Shalom Aleichem actually got to Tevye, though, there is a another beloved character he created. That is Menachem Mendel. Tell us about him. So as I mentioned before, Shalom Aleichem uh, had lost – uh, uh, the fortune that his wife, uh, his wife's inheritance, essentially in in the stock market, uh, and you know he lost all of his money. He had to flee some creditors. His mother in law bailed him out with some money. He lost that money too. His mother in law had to move in with him for the rest of his life. It was a whole story, and uh, he really needed to make some money for the first time since he had been married. And, you know, he hoped that literature would be his salvation. That he would write a kind of um, prospectus for a new collection and and that people would subscribe to that and he would get some income. And in that prospectus, he created a character who not surprisingly was a failed businessman. He was Menachem Mendel who also thinks he knows what he's doing, gets in ahead of himself and then you know, makes some money and then loses his shirt. Uh, one of the most interesting things about this character is not just his unbridled optimism. Basically, there are a series of these stories, and each time he makes he has some success, and then it explodes and up in his face, and he loses it. But he's unbowed and ready to go on to the next one. But not only that, but is interesting. But there is another character in this exchange, which is Menachem Mendel's wife, uh, Shana Shandel. These stories are structured as a series of letters between Menachem Mendel and his wife. Menachem Mendel is this kind of very optimistic dreamer. His wife, is, who is back at home, is a uh, much more cynical and justifiably so uh, 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 voice saying, come home, cut your losses, I know you're a schnook, <laughs> uh, but it's okay you know, as long as you come home. But that was impossible for Menachem Mendel in a similar kind of way that it was impossible for Shalom Aleichem to, to, to stop dreaming of the, of, of the big jackpot, of the big success. Although I should say that Shalom Aleichem and his wife had a much better relationship than Menachem Mendel and Shana Shandel ever did. <laughs> in the book, you make the point, and I've heard it made before, that his funeral uh, attracted thousands and thousands of people through the streets of New York City. He was a celebrity. What uh, do we attribute this level of adoration to? I mean, it was beyond just being a writer. I think that one of the things that is the most remarkable uh, about Shalom Aleichem's funeral is not just the sheer numbers that he was able to, to draw out. And I think that begins to speak to the kind of creation of an American Jewish culture that has a lot to do, not only, but a lot to do with a, a kind of nostalgia um, a, a certain kind of American Jewish culture where many of the people who came out were already saying, look, this is our link to a world that is vanishing, right? Both because of the depredations of the First World War, the war to end all wars that treated the Jewish communities very uh, uh, badly. Of course, they had no idea what would happen uh, a couple of decades later. But also that they, you know, for many of these people, their 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 ship to America was a one-way ticket. They were not going to see uh, a lot of their family and friends again. And, and in some ways, Shalom Aleichem was a kind of linkage to that old world for them, too. We often don't think about first-generation immigrants as saying, well, you know, uh, we're, we, we've left the old world behind, um, uh, you know, and we're nostalgic for it. But, of course, they, they very much were. Um, I think that... Not only 
was that aspect very prominently there, but the way in which almost all of the constituencies of Jewish life were able to come together and say, yes, he was our voice. So you have, and I discussed this in the book, you have all sorts of you know, Orthodox and Reformed Jews and Socialists and Zionists, and uh, they're all coming together to take part in this funeral participation. So everybody, even if you were part of a, a, a particular faction of, of, of Jewish identity, you believe that very strongly, you you were able to participate uh, as part of your specific Jewish identity in this funeral procession. And, and I think uh, it was rare to see that kind of unity. Jeremy, if you were to recommend one work by Shalom Aleichem for the uninitiated to read, what would that work be? You know, this is a question that I get asked sometimes, and uh, I always uh, am, am, am slightly sad answering it because the answer that I give sounds like the cliched answer, but <laughs> it, 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 it happens to be true, so there's there's very little I can do about it, um, which is the Tevye stories. I mean, they're, they're, they are – Different from Fiddler on the Roof, but that's not the reason to read them. The reason to read them are that they're the best and finest work by a a tremendously gifted world-class writer. Uh, Shalom Aleichem wrote these stories over a period of 20 years, and one of the things that's fascinating about them, as you'll see if you read them, and I hope you do, that Shalom Aleichem Aleichem and Tevye both age in real time. So they keep encountering each other years later, and things have happened. Water has gone under the bridge. They're older. Um, the, the, The circumstances that have gone on in history have happened. And it, it, it really is a profound and beautiful and funny and totally enrapturing sort of meditation on human life, on family, and on history. Jeremy Dauber, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Jeremy Dauber is the author of The World of Shalom Aleichem, The Remarkable Life and Afterlife of the Man Who Created Tevya. The book is out now from Shokin and Next Book's Jewish Encounter series. If you want to find out more about the book and about the other titles in the Jewish Encounter series, visit our website, tabletmag.com. And if we've left you with a hankering for a big dose of Fiddler on the Roof, well, you're in luck. We've got a podcast in a couple of weeks with Elisa Solomon, who's just published a cultural history of that musical. That will include show tunes. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. As always, we thank you very much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>